My name is Nala Yasuf. I am 22. I am Somali. One day, I stumbled upon a YouTube channel of Somali followers of Jesus and started chatting to them online. At first, I thought they were deceived. But over time, we became friends. They told me about Jesus and urged me to read the Bible. So many of my questions were answered. For the first time ever, I felt peace in my heart. My family suspected nothing, or so I thought. They took me to a place where they tried to cure apostates and psychopaths and tried different rituals to fix what was wrong with me. They beat and locked me up. They even tried some concoction on me. After one week, I fled the country with the help of my Christian friends. I was exhausted. I had constant headaches, all because of stress. My faith was shaken. I asked God, why do you hate me? Have you forgotten me? God reminded me that it was He who helped me to escape. In spite of her circumstances, I know that it is well with Nala's soul because she has Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. This morning, I want us to look at the blessing and cost of being on mission with Jesus and that we need to expect both of those things. According to one of the leading evangelical biblical scholars, D.A. Carson, there have been more people martyred for following Jesus Christ in the last century than in the first 1900 years of the church's history. So as we continue our journey through the book of Acts this morning, we must always remember that we are learning about our ongoing history as the church. And even today, as we deal with, we will deal with some of the same types of issues our brothers and sisters faced in the first century after the death of Christ, as we will see in our text this morning, the blessing and the cost of being on mission. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. We'll read verses 12 to 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. 
Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they were fear that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. Amen? So while on mission, faithfully proclaiming the message of this new life in Christ, the apostle experienced three realities in the passage that we read this morning. And the first reality is this, the blessing of being used by God to see lives dramatically transformed. While on mission, they had the blessing of being used by God to see lives dramatically transformed. After previous threats and commands, here in this chapter, we find the apostles boldly, not, in, not intimidated, not quietly, no, boldly continuing to minister publicly among the people. We see that in verse 12. 
They were gathered at the porch on the east side of the temple, inside the court of the Gentiles, which was the largest space where they could meet. Remember, there's now probably upwards of 10,000 people in the church. Modeling it again for us, our Christian faith is not a private faith. Jesus himself was crucified publicly. And after he rose, he commissioned the church and he commissions us to spread his message publicly. And now we find the apostles not only proclaiming the gospel, but also performing signs and wonders, miracles. How were they doing this? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, who worked through them, empowering them to perform signs and wonders. And why was this so important? In so doing, validating them as messengers of God's truth. They performed the signs and wonders because the Holy Spirit was working through them. And so great were the works that God was performing through Peter and the apostles that the people honestly believed Peter had and possessed divine power, which may even be extended to them simply by passing by his shadow. Can you imagine how great the works must have been that someone would actually see that? If I can just pass by his shadow... I too might experience this healing power. However, nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that Peter's shadow ever healed anyone. In fact, the healing power of God through Peter reached far beyond his shadow and where it was cast. In verse 15 and 16, as we read, Luke records that the physically sick who were in Jerusalem were laid on beds and mats in the streets I just want to pause there. Have you been downtown Oshawa lately at night? Along with the physically sick and those who were tormented by impure spirits who had gathered from towns around Jerusalem were all there. And what did the scripture say at the end of verse 16? How many of them were healed? All of them. All those sick within Jerusalem, all those who had come from towns outside of Jerusalem and gathered, they were all healed. Peter and the other apostles had the privilege of being used by God to see people's lives dramatically transformed. They were used by God to bring physical healing to the sick and spiritual freedom to those tormented by demons. I believe that many of those who are struggling in the streets of our city are tormented by impure spirits. I was talking with my brother yesterday. They spent 14 years in Liberia. They now work at Samaritan's Purse head office in Boone, North Carolina. And I asked him to remind me of this village called Foya that I'd heard about when they first went there. When they went there, they wanted to go work somewhere where no one had been. And everyone suggested, well, if that's where you want to go, go to Foya up on that mountain. Nobody goes there. Because it was so dark with spiritual demons, witchcraft, no one dared go to Foya. Where did God tell my brother to go? Foya. And he remembers walking up the mountain not knowing if he'll see his wife and his kids again. He didn't know what type of reception they would receive. Make a long story short, they built a relationship They started to do water filtration systems for that village. This was a village that actually had a temple where they sacrificed humans to their gods. And over the course of time, 
God began to do a dramatic transformation in that village. And I can tell you today, that village now declares Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And where they used to sacrifice humans, a church has been built. And God's word is now taught from that same place. God can use you and he can use me to do wonderful, drastic, dramatic transformation in people's lives. Now, when Jesus performed miracles during his earthly ministry, he had three purposes for performing miracles, to show his compassion and to meet the needs of the people, to present his credentials that he was the Son of God, and then thirdly, to convey spiritual truth. You remember when he fed the 5,000? He not only met their physical need of hunger that day, but he used that to reveal himself as the Son of God, and he used it as an opportunity to preach a sermon about the bread of life. You can read about it in John chapter 6. So God's miracles through the apostles followed the same pattern. You remember back in chapter 3 when God used Peter and John in the healing of the crippled beggar, met his physical need, but then Peter used that miracle to preach to the people and to the council that he and John were indeed servants of the risen Christ, who they had both seen and heard after Christ rose from the dead. That's important. Because to be an apostle, one had to be chosen directly by Christ and had to have seen Christ risen. So think about that, had to be chosen directly by Christ and seen Christ risen. Something that nobody today can claim either of those qualifications. That means there are no longer any apostles in the church of Jesus Christ today. The apostles and the prophets, we read in Ephesians, laid the foundation for the church, and now pastors like myself and the rest of our staff and those in Bible-preaching churches around the city and our country, teachers and evangelists, build on that foundation. So if there are no apostles, then there are no longer any signs of apostles as we find in this chapter. So you might be saying, so Pastor Calvin, you don't believe in miracles? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. While we recognize the nature of the apostles' ministry in the early church was unique and for a specific purpose, we still affirm that God has the same power to heal people even today. Listen to what we read in James chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. This is the instructions we are given. We practice this here at Calvary Baptist Church. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. According to his will, God still can miraculously intervene in a situation giving us a glimpse into what the kingdom to come will look like. And what will that kingdom look like? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Sometimes God, according to his will, will allow us to see a glimpse into what that future kingdom will look like through the healing of someone on this earth. My grandma Presley is one of those persons. She was opened up, full of cancer, 
They closed her up and said, Mrs. Presley, you have six weeks to live. My grandmother lived to 87 and didn't die of cancer. And if you hear her testimony, I have it on a cassette, she will tell you exactly the night she remembers lying in the Oshawa Hospital when she believes God healed her. In that situation, God broke through and gave our family a glimpse of what the kingdom is going to look like. And what was the doctor's response? Well, Mrs. Presley, I guess some people believe in miracles. One of the names of God is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals. So how should we pray for the sick today then? Because Pastor Dwayne, God chose not to give us a glimpse into what heaven would look like in his life. So how should we pray? We should pray and ask God who is our healer, Jehovah Rapha, the only one capable of healing, to heal those who are sick, if that is in accordance to his will. We know that our prayers for the physical healing of those who love Christ are always answered in one of the following ways. Please listen closely. The answer God will give sometimes is yes, immediately. Perhaps later. No, not in this life. But always yes at the resurrection. Always yes at the resurrection. I did a funeral for a 51-year-old father this Tuesday, and I encouraged his widow, and I encouraged their children. His body is going to be laid to rest, but it is going to rise again and be glorified, fully healed one day. But we must never forget that God not only heals our physical ailments, more importantly, he also heals our spiritual ailments as well. The greatest miracle is the transformation of a sinner into a child of God by God's grace. Amen? And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can testify, I have witnessed a miracle. Look in the mirror. You and I are miracles. God took us from the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of light. As one commentator said, salvation is the miracle that meets the greatest need, lasts the longest, and costs the greatest price, the blood of God's Son. So the days described by Luke and Acts 5 were days of mighty power. When God was speaking to Israel, there was a purpose for these miracles. He was telling them that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed their Messiah and Savior. In 1 Corinthians, we read that the Jews required a sign and God was gracious to them and gave them many signs. All of them were healed. But the important thing was not just the healing of their afflictions, but the winning of souls. Did you see that in verse 14? More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The Spirit gave the apostles power for wonders, yes, but also power for witness, Acts chapter 1. That's what Jesus said they would be. Listen, miracles apart from God's word cannot save a lost soul. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God about the message of Jesus. And these mighty wonders that they performed were the fulfillment of God's promise that he had made in John 14, 12 to 14, where Jesus told them that they would do greater works. What did he mean, you'll do greater works? Not in power, because the power is God's alone, but in extent. They would become witnesses to the world through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and would bring many to salvation. And folks, that is one miracle we can all participate in. 
as we share the message of the gospel, as we share the message of this new life that we have. And so I ask us this morning, are we actively available to be used on mission? I added actively because all of us would say, Lord, I'm available. But as you walk through the streets, as you interact with people in your office, in your community, are you actively looking to be available or do you think, well, there's no use praying for that person. They're just way too far gone. It's the same God today who can use you and I and we can witness amazing transformation in people's lives. As spirit-empowered witnesses, we must be ready to minister to the poor, to the hurting, to the sick and spiritually tormented. And listen, watch. Open our eyes and watch what the Holy Spirit might allow us to witness. They enjoyed the blessing of being used by God to see people's lives dramatically transformed. Secondly, they experienced the personal cost of obeying God rather than human beings. Committing to live a gospel-centered life on mission with Christ will personally cost you. It will. Because Satan knows that that kind of living brings phenomenal blessing to the individual and kingdom expansion. That's what we see in verse 17 and 18. The religious leaders were furious. Locked them up and put them in jail. And notice this run-in with the high priests and the Sadducees personally affected not just Peter and John, it affected all all the apostles, all of them. Remember the high priests and Sadducees, what did they love? They loved power. So as the apostles' popularity by God's grace and influence by God's grace increased on all the people, they were filled with jealousy. They were furious at the great success of these untrained and unauthorized men. And so they arrested them put them in the public jail with the intention of putting them on trial. Why? Because they had disobeyed the official order given previously to Peter and John to stop preaching and teaching anyone in the name of Jesus Christ. Now they were guilty of defying the laws of the nation. And the message about this new life that they were proclaiming was opposing the doctrines held by the Sadducees. In summary, the religious leaders were outraged because the apostles healed people, they loved people, and they shared the gospel with people. And all they wanted to do was have it all stop so that life can go on according to their will. Be prepared. Opposition follows those who do good. It just does. But don't be discouraged. Because at the same time, be prepared. Often in the face of opposition, you will witness God fighting for his own in miraculous ways. So yes, opposition will come. Whoa, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Isn't it ironic God sent an angel to miraculously free the apostles in the light of the fact that the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in the resurrection, and absolutely didn't believe in angels. You don't think God has a sense of humor? <laughs> I want to send an angel. And what did the angel instruct them to do? Resume preaching publicly in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. You might say, Pastor Calvin, I don't know what evangelism is. Here, God's telling you right now. Tell whoever you can about this new life 
that you have in Jesus Christ. Which was precisely what caused them to get arrested and put in prison in the first place. So what did they do? They remained obedient to God, kept proclaiming his truth, and trusted him with the consequences. They trusted him with the consequences. Verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. God freed them physically in order to free others spiritually. Take comfort. God may not send an angel to free you from prison should you find yourself unjustly jailed. But know this, he is always with you. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We are not on mission alone. We have the power of God in us and the king of glory fighting for us. And we see that in verses 21 to 24, how God fights for his own. He left those who had opposed the advancement of his mission to seek and save the lost, which the apostles were doing, completely bewildered. In verse 23, the officer who went to the jail to get them returns from the jail and says something like this, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The locks were still on, the guards were still in place, the prisoners are gone. And in verse 24, Luke records the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. And to make matters worse, then in verse 25, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Ooh. Can you imagine how astonished these envious religious leaders, members of the Sanhedrin must have been when they heard the shocking report that the former prisoners were back standing in the temple courts publicly teaching the people? Can you imagine? Here they were trying to stop miracles from happening and their efforts just keep increasing the miracles. This is how God works. This is how he fights for us. And in verse 26, we see the council finally bring the apostles back to put them on trial, but this time they used a different tactic. Did you notice that? They did not use force. Why? Because they feared the people would stone them. Part of my philosophy for outreach of Calvary has always been, do we matter to the city of Oshawa for the gospel's sake? If the authorities were to do something against us, would anyone... Would the authorities be worried to come and do something with us because the community might do something to them? That's what was happening here. And in verse 28, once before the Sanhedrin, the high priest accuses them of violating the previous command to not teach in, he didn't say Jesus' name. Notice that? Defile his lips with this man, Jesus, who you say is risen? No, he says, command them to teach in this name and for being determined to make them appear guilty for this man's blood. The council hated the relentless testimony of the apostles who kept telling them they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. Indeed, if the apostles were right, then the council was guilty of his blood. And like the first trial when Peter and John were in trial, as this trial intensified, God, through his power and the work of the Holy Spirit, started to turn the table on the meeting. And in essence, the apostles became the prosecutors and the councils became the accused. Verse 29, Peter said, and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Can you imagine how they heard that? Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice the answer. Their answer included both civil disobedience and gospel proclamation. The two must go together. On certain occasions when the state forbids what God requires or sanctions what God forbids, we must obey God rather than human beings. And go against the state may have its consequences. I read this week that around 360 million Christians daily face some level of persecution. And maybe those who face the fiercest are Muslim background believers. Listen to what Arif, an MBB, Muslim background believer, explained Christian in this way. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as their personal savior, there are many pressures. His or her spouse can be taken away. They could lose their property. They'll be isolated from the community. Their children will not have the same rights as others. And obviously, there's a good chance they will be killed. Listen to what he says. It's not just a personal cost. He says becoming a believer comes with a cost for all. There's a blessing and a cost to following Jesus Christ and being on mission with him. So I ask us this morning, I ask myself this week, to what extent am I willing to suffer for living for Jesus Christ and sharing the message of this new life with others? What extent? Nala was willing to leave it all. You see, in order to be his disciple, we must count the cost and be willing to give up everything for him. Jesus said in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And here in Acts, the apostles had counted the cost and chose civil disobedience for an obvious reason. They couldn't stop preaching the gospel. They didn't respond with hate speech or violent demonstrations. They simply kept doing what Christ said they would be empowered to be. His witnesses who would proclaim the good news as people on mission should do. They saw their confrontation as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Did you see that? They reminded the council of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his saving work. That he was dead and that he is now alive and people need to repent and receive forgiveness for their sins. They hadn't changed their convictions from the first time they were on trial. They obeyed God. And they trusted him with the consequences. They knew they could not serve two masters. And they had already declared whose side they were on. They were on the risen Jesus Christ side. They were going to stand firmly for the Lord. And in verse 33, what was the response of their conviction to stand firmly on the Lord? When the council heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But before they could, a leading Pharisee named Gamaliel spoke up. Remember, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't get along. So the fact that the Sadducees even listened to the words of this Pharisee shows what an honored teacher he was among all the people. But don't think that Gamaliel was sensitive or sympathetic towards the apostles and the gospel's message. No. Rather, who is sovereign over all things? God. 
Rather, God, who miraculously cares for his own, used Gamaliel to save the apostles from death that day. How do I know that? How do I know that Gamaliel was not sympathetic to the apostles or to the gospel message? Because he assumed Jesus was just another rebel, like the two he mentioned, Theodos and Judas the Galilean. But did these two ever do the things Jesus did? No. Were either of them raised from the dead? No. Gamaliel, like the rest of the council who had already rejected, also did not see and accept the evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. He's just another rebel. That's all he is. To him, Jesus was just another zealous Jew trying to set the nation free from Rome, and he made the mistake of assuming that history would repeat itself. Did you see that in verse 36 to 38? Listen to what he says. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. All his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, leave these men alone. He just presumed, well, history is just going to repeat itself. However, the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ had never happened before and will never happen again. God broke into history and visited this earth through Jesus. And we here today are living proof that the apostles' missional activity was not of human origin. It was from God. We are still here. We are still here. And Gamaliel was correct in saying, if, God is, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And so God used Gamaliel's bad logic to convince the council that there was really nothing to worry about. Troublemakers come and troublemakers go. Don't worry about it. Praise God, we are witnesses today that their work was of God. And so in verse 40, we see that his speech persuaded them to let the apostles go. But before their release, what happened? They flogged them. And here we get to our last point for this morning. The third reality they experienced on mission was the joy. The joy of being counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. While the council fall found Gamaliel's wisdom compelling, it didn't stop them from assaulting the apostles. The council wanted to kill the apostles, but God, through the Pharisees' speech, tempered their violence. And in a compromise move, the council decided to have the apostles flogged. What does that mean? They were given 40 lashes minus one. A beating so bad that some people actually died from it. And then they were commanded again to stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. William Temple said that Christians are called to the hardest of all tasks. To fight without hatred. To resist without bitterness. And in the end, if God granted so, to triumph without vindictiveness. What was Jesus' words on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So how did the apostles respond to this illegal, brutal punishment from their nation's religious leaders? Verse 41. <laughs> they did what we would do. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. 
The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Brothers and sisters, being filled with the Holy Spirit enables us to rejoice, be glad, and be blessed when persecuted because of our identity with Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not easy. Ministry done by the Spirit and focused on the gospel brings undeniable sense of joy and energy to the person who's ministering. Jesus had told his disciples, expect persecution, and had actually instructed them to rejoice in it. Be glad. The opposition of men meant approval of God, and they considered it an honor to suffer for his name. Although the council probably that day thought they'd won a great victory. We've whipped them 40 minus one. They'll never do this again. This will shut them up. It was actually the apostles who were the winners that day because they grew in godliness as they yielded to God's will and suffered for their Savior and King and Master, Jesus Christ. You see, opposition matures disciples and expands the mission. James chapter one, verse two and four says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, if you've read Peter's epistles, he has a lot to say in his first epistle about the meaning of suffering in the life of a believer. But here in Acts, we get to recount how he was learning that lesson along with his fellow apostles. Neither threats, imprisonment, or beating stopped them from witnessing for Jesus Christ. If anything, their persecution only made them trust God even more and seek greater power in ministry because no one can stop the mission of the king that you and I are on. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, I tell you, Peter, on this rock that Jesus is Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The apostles had a commission to fulfill and they intended to continue that as long as the Lord enabled them. And I love what the late Joe Bailey writes in his book. Listen to this, it's so good and convicting. Jesus Christ didn't commit the gospel to an advertising agency. He commissioned disciples. The commission still stands. In your life, is it a commission or an omission? Verse 42, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That verse summarizes the apostles' pattern for evangelism, and it is an excellent pattern for us to follow. They witness daily, taking advantage of opportunities no matter where they were. Their motive was not defiance, but rather obedience to the Lord and his mission. And it was always Jesus Christ who was at the center of their witness. This week while I was having lunch, 
I was sitting with some of the guys, and they said, oh, did you see that your friend Bay Forrest got inducted to the uh, small college hall of fame? I was like, nope. And I was like, why wouldn't Bay tell me this? So I FaceTimed him. I actually know how to do that now. I FaceTimed him right there at the table. And he answered it, and he was huffing and puffing and sweating. And he said, thank you so much for calling me. I was hating this workout anyway. I said, what's this I hear? These guys are telling me that you were inducted to the da-da-da. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, the Lord just happened to work it out. They wanted to induct me. We happened to be in Florida doing ministry. And he says, and then the witnesses who were at lunch with him will tell you. And then he just couldn't stop saying, it was an incredible opportunity. You couldn't believe it. They gave me eight minutes. I had eight minutes to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to thousands of people who were there at this induction ceremony. He says it was as quiet as a church because they had no clue what they were being told. It was the most unusual acceptance speech at a Hall of Fame ceremony. And then he sent it to me. And I said to Jen, I said, that's just who Bay is. Doesn't matter where he is or what opportunity he's given. He is going to declare the message of the good news of this life that he has. And if my wife was here, I'd, I'd be able to get her to get you that video, but I don't know how to do it. So, <clears throat> but it's really cool. So as we close today, I urge us, I urge us to align our lives with Jesus and his mission, knowing, don't be naive, knowing that it comes with both blessing and a cost. By God's grace, the apostles decided to follow Jesus. By God's grace, the 10,000 new members who made up the early church that we are a part of decided to follow Jesus. By God's grace, Nyala, our Somalian sister, decided to follow Jesus. What will you and I decide to do today? Paul writes in Philippians 3, 8 to 11, what is more... I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Is Christ enough for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Thank you for allowing us to even be considered to be on mission with you through the great salvation you provided through our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you will awaken us today to be thankful and to look for opportunities to be used by you to see you dramatically transform lives. Father, we recognize today we're no one special. So why should many of our brothers and sisters have to have paid a high cost to following you. It's great blessing and there's a cost in following you, Jesus. As you followed your father, it cost you. But look what has come as a result of that. And so God, I pray that you would help us to remember, celebrate the blessings, count the costs,
be obedient and trust you with the consequences. Christ, you are enough for us. In your name I pray. Amen. The blessing and cost of being on mission. There's three questions that I asked us all to contemplate on this morning. Are we actively available to be used by God on mission? To what extent are we willing to suffer for living for Jesus Christ and sharing this new life with others? How you answer those two are going to be completely dependent upon how you answer the third one. Is Christ enough for you? If Christ is enough for you and if Christ is enough for me, I tell you what, we are going to be actively available and we are going to be willing to suffer for living for Jesus Christ and sharing this new life. And if we do that, be prepared. You will witness things that only God can get the glory for and see transformation in people's lives. If you're here this morning and you'd like to pray with one of the pastors or our wives or our ministry to women leaders will be here at the front, I would encourage you, don't rush out of here. If you just want to pray with someone, you need prayer, maybe, maybe for sickness, maybe for salvation, maybe for courage, pray and let's call on the God who empowered the apostles to also empower us in our situations this morning. Come, we are here for you, we love you, and we are on mission with you. God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon.